As Terry mentioned, uh, we're starting our new year with a four-week series looking at the theme of discipleship in the scriptures. And that's because uh, over the last year and this year, a major focus of our church is thinking through how are we as a church going about making disciples? Over the last year, it's really been kind of at a leadership level. We've been thinking and praying about this. Uh, exploring the scriptures, brainstorming different ideas. And uh, though those ideas are not completely set in concrete yet at a leadership level, we're feeling like this year we really need to start as a whole church wrestling and grappling with these theme, themes. And so that's what we've been, that's been a major focus of our prayer week. That'll be a focus in our prayer time tonight, which I hope all of you will be able to be at. And uh, over these next four weeks, it'll be a focus of our sermons. So that's what we're going to be doing. So I'd like you uh, to invite you to take your Bibles. I'm going to be reading from uh, two different uh, scripture passages this morning. First, I'll be reading from uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and then Revelation 5, 9 through 10. Book ends of the Bible as it relates to this theme. And uh, as you can see, the question that we're looking at really today, the first in our four-week series in discipleship is, what is God doing in the world? So we'll get a sense of that as we look at these two verses. So... Um, because it is God's voice that is heard when we read the scriptures, one of the things we do as a church is stand for the reading of God's word. So would you join me in that? Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And now turn all the way back to the end in Revelation, on page 1031, Revelation chapter 5. And I'll read verses 9 and 10. And they sing a new song, saying... Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You can be seated as we pray. Father, it is my heart that what we're doing in 2015 and 2016 as it relates to discipleship wouldn't be our focus for these two years, but that they would lay a foundation stone that would shape and direct this church for years to come. 
In order for that to be the case, Lord, our hearts need to be shaped and molded by your scripture. We need to understand, today we need to understand what you are doing in this world. And for some of us, that'll just be um, confirmation of things that we've already considered and known, but a reminder. And others, it will be eye-opening and transformative. And so... It is our collective prayer that you would shape us by your word. We open ourselves to what you have to say. Show us where our thinking is not aligned with your thinking, with what you have said. And use this word today in a foundational way in our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. My opic. Unable to think about anything outside your own situation. Myopic. It's a metaphorical use of the word myopia, the medical term for nearsightedness. So the American who assumes that the whole world must think about things like Americans do is said to have a myopic worldview. When my three-year-old is convinced that she is a better judge of when to go to bed than her parents are, she does so because she has an inherently myopic perspective. And the Christian who views what God is doing in this world in light only of what he has done for him has a myopic view Of what God's plan is for this world. And I believe. I'm convinced that one of the great ills. That plagues the modern church. Is a myopic view. Of what God is doing in this world. And this is a a serious problem. Let me tell you why it's a problem. It's because a myopic view of God's plan. Leads to a distorted view of the Christian life. Let me say that again. A myopic view of God's plan leads to a distorted view of the Christian life. So, if you want to think about discipleship, a lot of that's, you know, the Christian life. How are we supposed to live? And, you know, what does that have to do with kind of God's big plan? But I think we need to start with what God is doing in this world because it's only when we really experience expand our horizons when we begin to see things in light of what he said the full orb picture of what he's doing in this world in his word that we can start to view rightly what the christian life is think just think with me think of this kind of myopic view of god's plan that's so common amongst christians today it's the view that god that god loves me so much that he died so he wouldn't have to spend eternity without me The full extent of my understanding of God's plan is that he died to save me from hell. Now, it's it's not that those notions are, are completely wrong. In fact, there's a lot of really solid and important truth in them. But it's nearsighted. They only see the parts of God's plan that personally benefit me. 
And this kind of myopia, then, when it gets translated to the Christian life, leads us to give all of our energy at getting other people to this moment of decision where they pray a prayer, fill out a pledge card, whatever it is, make a decision for Christ, because we think that's the end-all, be-all of what it means to follow Christ. And so we think little about what actual discipleship is. We think little about what actual conversion is, because this myopic view of God's plan gets translated in how we live out our Christian life, right? There's another common myopia amongst us. See, much of the teaching and preaching and Christian books that you'll read today suggests that God is here to make my hard situation a little bit better. So here's how God can improve your marriage. Here's how God can improve your finances. Here's how God can help you lose weight. You can even find books on that these days. On and on it goes. And again, it's not that those notions are wrong altogether. Sometimes we need to be thinking about those things. And God's word does have things to say about that. But they're so governed, our, our view of what God's doing is so governed by my own world, right? What, what my sphere is. So they're myopic. And that myopic view leads to a distorted view of the Christian life. So when struggle, when struggles come up, as they inevitably do, we go and say, wait a second, wasn't God supposed to be making my life better? I mean, didn't I embrace Jesus because I was told that if I embraced Jesus, the sadness would go away and everything would be great? And it's not, sometimes. Sometimes we face times of sadness or hardship. We can think, and, and you know, our Christian, our, our Christian life, we, we walk through life thinking like genie, God is this genie in a bottle that we carry along with us that when times get hard, I rub the bottle and out pops the genie to make everything better and make my wishes come true. Only they don't come true. And so we end up disillusioned with God. So do you see what I mean? A myopic view of God's plan, what God's doing in this world, leads to a distorted view of the Christian life. So I have one goal this morning. I want to cure our collective myopia. I want to do, I want God's Spirit to do, corrective surgery on our eyes. I want us to be able to see the rich, full-orbed, dynamic picture, the broad picture of what God is doing in this world. And then next week, after having done that, we'll look at the implications of that for our lives. So today we'll simply see what it is that God is doing in this world. That is, what is His plan? What is God about? What is God doing in this world? In order to do that, we're going to have to be in several places in the Scripture. So we're going to start where we started in our Scripture reading and where the Bible starts in Genesis chapter 1. So if you've closed there, open back up. It's on page 1 in the Pew Bible. So the Bible describes kind of this disordered chaos that God comes and and creates the world out of. 
chapter 1 of Genesis kind of unfolds how God is intimately involved in speaking the world into into its existence. And then on the sixth day, God creates humans. And he does so in a way very different than he created anything else. And so that's what we read there in verses 26, 27, and 28 at the outset. The very first thing he says is, let us make man in our own image. Have you thought about that word, being created in God's image? If you've grown up in Christian circles, you hear that all the time. People are creating God's image. There's a lot of implications of that. But, but what, what do we mean when we talk about his image? I remember when I was a first starting out as a teacher. I was in university, and I was teaching kids. Our church was a smaller church, so I had uh, five-year-olds up through 12-year-olds in one class. That was fun. And uh, I had to teach them about what it meant to be created in God's image. So I got a mirror out, a handheld mirror, and I passed it around the room. Because when you look in the mirror, you see something that looks like yourself, but it's not you. It's an image of you. It is a reflection of you, right? So I'm the real thing. That's the image, right? Then I had to tell them, because when you're teaching kids, they can take things very literally. It's not that we look like God. It's not like we're the mere image in terms of we look like him, like that image looks like you, but rather it's his character, his being that is reflected in us. So we are created to be a mirror reflection of who our God is. Right? Now there's, there's other things related to what it means to be created in the image of God, but that at the very core is centered to what we are as created in the image of God. We're created to be a reflection of God's character to those around us so that when they see us, they can see a bit of what the God who created us is like. So what are these image bearers, man and woman, supposed to do? We see that in verse 28. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So these image bearers aren't just supposed to stay in one little spot and be a little reflection of God to one little spot. But his his reflection, the image of God is to be spread out throughout the whole world. So that the whole world is governed by people who are reflecting the goodness of his rule. Who are walking reflections of what God is like over the whole world. That is God's original plan as he created the earth, this perfect paradise where his good kingdom is present and we get to enjoy all the bounty of this garden of Eden paradise. It was designed where humans would be a reflection of the goodness of God in a way that all the earth is encompassed with that. Most of us know the story of Genesis. The story of what happened. You see, Adam chose to rebel against God. He chose to say, I'm not following your authority. You've given me one command. I'm going to violate that one command because it seems good to me to do otherwise. He takes the fruit. He eats. And in that moment, all the goodness of the garden is shattered. And even mankind's ability to accurately reflect the image of God 
is marred in a substantial way. We still walk about as created in the image of God. And yet something about our very purpose, what we are called to do as image bearers, is marred at that moment because at that moment sin was unleashed. Like a dark pall that cast its shadow over the whole earth. A dark shadow that reaches into our very souls and darkens our very souls and taints them all throughout with sin. We're not such good image bearers anymore. And as you go through chapters 3 through 11 of the book of Genesis, it describes this this broad and universal damning effect of the unleash of sin upon the world. It says, Jesus said, the day you eve it, death comes. You'll die. And that death does spread. So you, you start seeing death through murder. You see death through people getting old and dying. You see death through um, the pain that comes with this world. And you see sin and how people, when they're not following God or following their own judgment, start to just get after each other and do things that are distorted and wrong. It's a dark picture of the universal blight, the universal curse upon mankind. And then we come to Genesis 12. There's a major shift in the Old Testament. Genesis 1 through 11 are about the whole world. Genesis 12 through the rest of the Old Testament are about Abraham and his descendants, the people of Israel. But listen to what it says about Abraham and his line in Genesis 12. It's just a few pages ahead. I heard some of you turning there already. I haven't yet. Okay, now I'm there. At this point, Abraham's called Abram. Yahweh says to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. That's the nation of Israel. And I will bless you. And I'll make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And then listen to this. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You hear that? Abraham's line is important because all the families of the earth will be blessed through this line. So if Genesis 3 through 11 describe a universal curse, Genesis 12 verse 3 describes a universal blessing, but that will flow through one specific people, the people of Israel. So, so that means the Old Testament, as we look at it, isn't some narrow book written only for the Jewish people. As we see the story of Israel in the Old Testament, it's actually the story of all of our redemption. It unfolds the hope of all humanity. You catch that? It's through Abraham and this great nation that's going to come from him that blessing instead of curse will come. A blessing that will be for all the families of the earth. Flip ahead to, just so you see, it's not like some, oh, that's just some random thing at the start of Genesis. Look ahead to Psalm 67. That's on page 481. 
Psalm 67 on page 481. This is a song. It was originally a song of the people of Israel. It was their hymn book. Inspired by God. It says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us that Your way may be known on earth, Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. So Israel says, the blessing and grace that we receive as your special chosen people is given to us so that all the peoples, all the nations can know his saving power And then can know true and lasting joy and sing praise to Him. Right? So the narrow blessing to Abraham, the narrowing to Abraham and his people, is so that all the nations can be blessed. And so what is this nation called to do? Now we're going to know that eventually Jesus comes from that line. So you can see it is from that nation that the ultimate blessing comes. And that's important as you see descendants in Genesis, and that's why there's genealogies in Genesis, but I'm going off on a different tangent. What I want to say, also, how is this people supposed to be a blessing? You get a little bit of this in two verses. I'm just going to read two verses. You don't have to turn there. You can jot them down in your notes and look them up later. But one is Exodus 19.6, right before the Ten Commandments are given. God says to Israel, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, And a holy nation. What's the job of a priest? A priest is to mediate between God and man. So they represent man to God. But they also represent God to man. In a sense, they mediate God's presence to the people. This has a bit of that image-bearing idea to it, right? To be a kingdom of priests is a kingdom of people who are reflecting God, mediating His presence to the world, right? That's why it says they're to be a holy nation. So we see that right in the middle of all the laws that are given in Leviticus 20.26. He says, you shall be holy to me. For I, Yahweh, am holy. And have separated you from the peoples. That you should be mine. You see... The way they're supposed to be living is related to His character. The special people of God are called to live a distinct way because He is distinct. They're supposed to reflect His character as a set-apart people. Some of you guys know that uh, before I came to Maple Avenue, I was a pastor in Texas. Now, I don't know uh, what your connotation of Texas is, but in the United States... Texas has a very distinct culture, and those, well, let's just say I grew up making fun of Texas. It's a little bit of a, it's actually more of a cultural move for me to pastor in Texas than it has been to pastor in Canada. Um, I served under a man named uh, Tom Buck. It's a good Texas pastor's name, isn't it? Great man. Tom and I 
we're so like-minded. We, we were after the same things together. And the way that church was set up when we first came, we were, just the, we were the two elders. There were other pastors on staff, but there weren't lay elders. It was just the two of us who were the elders leading the church. And him being the senior pastor, me being a young associate, I was very deferential to him in public. Um, in private, when things that weren't like big, major theological things, but kind of fine-tuning direction, stuff like that, a lot of times we were, you know, at odds with each other. We would go at it and say, I'm not sure that's the way to go. And he'd say, no, I think that... And we'd go back and forth. But after we kind of discussed things and had good, vibrant conversation, my job... Again, not in terms of violating my conscience or something like that, but my job was to go out and, with the congregation, represent Tom and his perspective to the congregation. We were presenting a unified direction from the elders, Tom and I. And oftentimes it was not my own conviction, but Tom's that I was representing because I was a representative of him to the congregation. You have a similar role for an ambassador, right? An ambassador's job isn't to come up with what he thinks is best for that country's relations. His job is to represent what the prime minister or the president or the dignitary, you know, has, has decided is going to be the case. They then represent that. That's what Israel's being called to be. To take who God is and to represent that. To be an ambassador of that. To be an image bearer of that. A holy nation. Uniquely belonging to God. And uniquely reflecting God. That is what Israel was called to be. And the blessing and grace that God showed Israel. Would be something that ultimately was available to all the world. Now here's the thing. As you read the Old Testament. You find that Israel doesn't do a very good job of living this kind of holy reflection to God. Like Adam and Eve, and like us today, they failed as image bearers over and over again. Now, there are some exceptions, but the rule in the Old Testament is they do not do a good job of that. And why is it? It's because that power that Adam unleashed, that dark pall that spread over the old earth, that poison that creeps into the heart, had crept into their heart still. Sin and death still reigned upon the earth, even though God was calling this people and calling them to something. Nothing had been done to break the power of sin and death. Have you ever tried to be good in your own strength? Maybe it was before you came to Christ or really understood the gospel. Maybe that's where you're at right now. You go to church because you notice, hey, I try and live a good life and I see these other people, even though they believe differently than me, they seem to be trying to live a good life too. And you try and do it. And you're like, why can't I? I It's not that I'm even saying, hey, I'm going to take God's standards and live to them. I'll just try and create my own standards. I can't even measure up to them. Why? The Bible answers that for us. There is a power power at work in this world that explains why this world's such a mess and a power at work in our hearts that explains why our hearts are such a mess and it's a power of sin and death enter jesus this is where things get really exciting look at romans 5 with me 
It's on page 942. Romans 5, page 942. First, let me read verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So it describes what we've just talked about, right? Now, skip down a little bit, because it's leading. there's an argument leading up to verses 17 and 18. So it resumes this argument in verse 17. For... If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Listen, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. What's the one act of righteousness it's talking about? It's pointing back, if you read the rest of Romans 5, it's pointing back to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. You you see, when Jesus went to the cross, when He was on the cross, he, He bore the weight of sin upon Himself. So He dealt with sin and its consequence. He defeated sin on the cross so that before He even dies, He cries out, It is finished. Because He drunk in full, the cup of God's wrath. He defeats sin. Remember what comes with the reign of sin, the reign of death. So if he actually has defeated sin, then he will also then defeat death. And so we celebrate on Easter Sunday, and every Sunday we gather together, that Jesus rose up on the third day and actually defeated death. So he defeats sin on the cross. He defeats death on Easter. And it shows that these two things that have such power on this earth have been dealt a fatal blow. He has pierced the darkness. A light has shone. And He breaks that power. What Jesus does then is two things for us. One, He allows us who are enslaved to this sin and and are, are part of the kingdom that's in rebellion against God to actually be transferred to this new kingdom. This kingdom of His Son. A king that's not a kingdom of sin and strife and self-will, but a kingdom of joy and peace and love and charity and righteousness and justice. A sinner like me can be transferred to this kingdom only because Jesus has paid the penalty of my sin. He has forgiven me. He has paid what I owe. So I am transferred through faith in Jesus. I am transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son. I'm forgiven. I'm transferred. It's a key word here, that transferred. But there's something else he does besides transfer me. He actually takes that poison in my heart, that reign of sin in my heart that I've inherited from my forefathers And He causes my heart to be reborn or remade, my very nature to change. 
It doesn't mean that the flesh doesn't still carry with it the burden of sin. But there's something new in me. Something transformative in me. He, he doesn't just transfer me to the kingdom. He begins to transform me into the image of His Son. So that as His Spirit works in me, I am conformed more and more to be like Jesus. To reflect Him. In a way that Israel couldn't prior to the cross. In a way that we, as all nations who are under Christ, can because of what Jesus did on the cross. So, God's work then. For what is God doing in this world? What is God doing? He's, he's taking people who are sinners... And He is transferring us through the forgiveness of Christ into the kingdom of His Son. Transfer. The other T word, what is He doing? He is transforming us, who were sinners, to be more and more like Jesus. That is God's work in the world. He is doing that through Christ, transferring people into His kingdom and transforming us to be more and more like Christ. You have the darkness of this kingdom. You have the light of the kingdom Christ brings and they're butting up against each other because of what Christ did. And he's, he's plucking us out of this one. He's plucking us down in his own. Now, there's a few scriptures that really make this explicit and I want to I turn to these. I'm just going to look at two. Kind of, I want you to read them with me. The first is uh, in Titus 2, verse 11 to 14. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 998. 998. So again, listen to what God's doing in Christ. Our myopic view is He's saving me from hell. Let's look at the broad, full orb view. He says, Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So yes, He is saving us from hell. But then it says, Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Meaning, we're being transformed until Jesus comes back again. And then it says, Jesus Christ, who gave himself, listen, to redeem us from all lawlessness. So again, that forgiveness, that transfer from one kingdom to another. To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He's not just transferring us. He's not just forgiving us. But He is transforming us. He's making us into a people. What is God doing in this world? He is making a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Does that make sense? There's another passage. Let's look at one other one. It's the one I read at the outset from Revelation. And uh, chapter 5. Here, here, the people are praising Jesus for the, for the essential nature of the work He did. They're boiling it down to what is it that Christ did. 
And as I read this, especially having thought about Genesis being image bearers and people who reign, fulfill, and subdue the earth, hear the echoes of Genesis here. Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. Worthy are you to take the scroll, worthy are you, Jesus, Lamb, to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So again, ransomed. We're plucked out of one kingdom, placed into another. That transfer, right? Forgiven. But there's more. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. God isn't just about ransoming. He's about ransoming a people and then making them a kingdom of priests who reign on the earth, who reflect His glory all around the world. Right? I talked about my uh, pastoral role in Texas. My first pastoral role was in a suburb of Chicago called Wheaton. And I was a pastor over the 20s ministry. I inherited the 20s ministry from a pastor who just kind of started it on the side. He was doing something else, and then he went to take on another role. But he was the one who named it. And he named the ministry, was saddled with this name, 129. Okay? You write that out, and everyone calls it 129. Then you're like, no, it's not 129. It's not 129. It's 129. What is 129? Is that the age group? I mean, what's going on here? But it actually was a brilliant name. Because it's taken from 1 Peter 2.9. Which says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession." that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Do you hear the echoes of Exodus 19.6? A holy nation, a kingdom of priests. You hear Titus 2, 11-14, a people for His own possession, zealous for good works. He called us out of darkness into his light. He transferred us from one place to the other. Why? So that we could be this holy nation that proclaims his excellencies all around so that we can be restored to the image bearers we were called to be in Christ. So in Christ we can actually do what we are created to do, to be walking image bearers of Christ so that everyone around us can see what he is like. That is what God is doing in this world. You see, the Bible doesn't teach that God is ultimately about saving me from hell. He does do that, but that's not what He's ultimately about. God isn't ultimately about making my life better. Though when we live in light of His kingdom, it does transform much of our lives. God isn't ultimately about protecting me from all the brokenness of a world in rebellion against Him. What is God about? What is God doing in this world? He's about establishing a people for Himself who are zealous for good works. He's about ransoming a people and making them a kingdom of priests who reign upon the earth. You'll hear this transfer and transform language a lot as we build 
build what we're talking about in terms of discipleship. But he, he is about transferring sinners into the kingdom of his son by allowing us to be forgiven and then transforming us into a holy nation of people that can better and better as we live reflect Jesus. If I repent, it means turn, turn my back on my way, my own kingship of my life, and embrace Jesus as my king, he immediately transfers me to that glorious kingdom. And then he, he caused me to be born again so that I can begin the process of growing more and more like Jesus. He is about the work of transferring us and transforming us. So, has God perhaps exposed your myopia today? Has He helped you see beyond yourself to the greater work that God is doing in this world? I look out, there's a lot of people with glasses in the room, and there's probably many of you with contact lenses or corrective surgery or whatever else that at one point couldn't see well. I, at one point, couldn't see well, and I'm starting again to not be able to see well. But I remember when I was in junior high, my eyesight had been deteriorating and deteriorating. And finally, my parents realized, this this kid can't see. So they brought me to the eye doctor. If you had bad eyes, do you remember the first time you got your contacts or your glasses? I mean, when I walked out of the office and I looked up at the trees, it's like, you can see their leaves. It's not just a big green mass. I didn't have to sit at the front of the classroom anymore. Some of those headaches you get from squinting go away. When you get your eyesight corrected, it's transformative for how you live, isn't it? That's what we've been saying. That if we get rid of this myopic view of God's plan, it actually gets rid of the distorted way we live our Christian life. And we're going to focus more on that last week, but next week. But let me just give you two tastes of this. Let's say you're getting ready for a long trip. You're going to travel. If you have that myopic view of God, then you think, okay, here's what I need to ask God for. I need to ask God that I'd be safe in my travels, that nothing hard would come up, that this would be an easy trip, nice and easy, you know, nothing bad. That's my prayer. But if what God is doing is not trying to make my life as easy as possible, like a genie in the bottle. But what if God is doing is establishing for himself a people who are zealous for good works, who are reflecting his image to the world? Then I say, God, I know I live in a fallen world, and there's a chance my flight will be delayed, or my tire will get flat, or my kids will start quarreling. There's not just a chance my kids will start quarreling in the back. How how can I, God, use this situation, whatever's going to come up, to grow more Christ-like? To exhibit the fruit of the Spirit? Maybe even to convey to my children who have not yet embraced Christ, some of them, 
a little bit of what the gospel, how the gospel's true. Or maybe those other people who are in line at the airport mumbling and grumbling under their breath or not under their breath. How do I convey to them the gospel to reflect the goodness of my God to them? It changes how you pray about that trip if you get rid of that myopic view and view what God is really doing in this world. Or maybe you've had some grief Maybe it's a sudden and intense pain that you felt. Or maybe it's a prolonged, extracted burden you've carried. The myopic view says, God, why do you allow this? Why me? You have the power to take hardship away. Why didn't you? But, when we get that corrective surgery, the corrected view says, God, what are you doing in this? What are your purposes? How do you want to refine me through this? How do you want to refine my character through this? Or how do you want me to reflect something about the gospel and who Jesus is to my lost relatives and neighbors and friends? Or maybe you're allowing me to go through this so that later on in life you'll be giving me a platform to share the goodness of the gospel with somebody else who's experienced what I've experienced. But you see, it changes how you think and pray about the situations we face every day. A corrected view of God's plan actually does change everything. Our myopic view leads to a distorted way of living for Christ. Next week, we'll explore in depth how this new way of seeing actually leads to a new way of living. But today, it is my prayer and my hope that we can have collectively, maybe it's just a little tweak in our prescription, or maybe it's eye surgery, so that our myopic view is transformed so we can see all of what God is doing in this world. Let's pray. Father, for some, what we just heard is a reminder of things we've known for a long time. For others, this may be the first time we're hearing things like this. And certain Strides we've set for ourselves in our Christian life are being pushed and we're feeling uncomfortable and stretched. Father, you cannot, it's not just my words that are going to do the corrective surgery. It has to be your Holy Spirit. So I pray, we pray with united prayer saying, Father, shape our hearts and minds so that we see what you're doing in this world as the scriptures unfold it. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.